his claims. And just to give you a bit of background again, in case you haven't been here for other weeks, the church in Galatia, essentially we have Judaizers, these are a group of Jews who were essentially saying that you have not, um, you're not living in the fullness of the gospel. There are some things that you need to do. Circumcision, uh, rituals, um, ceremonial rituals, and cleansing that you need to do before you actually fully encounter Christ and the gospel. Um, and really, this letter now, as we hit chapter three, Paul, uh, Chris was speaking on it last week, wasn't he? He was speaking on this key issue that is right throughout the letter of Galatians that Paul will continue to hammer and hammer and hammer. And it's this, the gospel is a gospel of faith alone through Christ alone. It's a gospel of faith alone through Christ alone. And um, really, these are the, the big stones, actually, that we build our lives on. Okay, This is huge as far as theological points, as far as understanding what Christ has done, understanding the gospel, understanding how we live. And um, so Paul wants to make sure that this big stone is right in place. It's a gospel of grace, not a, not a works righteousness gospel. Okay, so I want to today look at a few topics. It's funny, it's, as I say, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day. I could really preach exactly the same thing as Chris preached last week. But it's actually, as a preaching team, looking at different angles of what is Paul actually really trying to bring here. It's the same message, but it's come from a different angle. And that's what Paul is doing. As he brings his argument, he brings it in different ways. Okay, so we're going to see how he structures his argument to the church in Galatia. Um, and so I want to look at some of these big theological terms that you may hear banded around. Uh, things like justifi- justification by faith alone. And I want to look at imputed righteousness this morning. Um, and I want to look at the Holy Spirit uh, and the promised Holy Spirit and how he works in our lives. Uh, but I thought we'd start just with this title. It's Faith or Works of the Law. Just hold that one, yeah. Um, Faith or works of the law. And I wanted to look at this idea of faith. Because we're looking at this a lot. And actually we haven't really tried to unpack this idea of what is faith. And uh, I think we'd all agree really uh, on the first point. I think there's two parts to trying to understand faith. And the first is a commonly accepted part, isn't it? It involves... You can, you can put that next one up. It involves... Um, Essentially, looking at our, our Bible, it's a faith that's involved in believing, okay? Um, and in our, in our Bibles, faith is the noun and believing is the verb, okay? And if you don't believe the truth of Jesus Christ, that he died and he rose again, and he was Lord over everything, and he's conquered sin, then essentially, you don't have faith in him, okay? And therefore, you won't be one of his disciples. And the other part of faith involves trusting, Okay, and so the first part is this understanding, okay, and believing who he is and what he's done for us in our lives. And the second part is this trusting him. And it's trusting him, not just from an intellectual perspective or realization that God exists or Jesus Christ existed. The Bible tells us the devil trusted that God existed. But it's actually about a commitment of our lives into his hands. It's trusting our very lives into his hands. 
And so I wanted to illustrate that this morning. I wonder if I can get a volunteer. Anyone want to volunteer for me? Fee, well done. Okay. Do you trust me? Yeah. Yeah? We're going to just do this, this falling, okay? So I want you to turn around this way. Do you trust me to catch you? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's see you go for it. Okay. So I've caught you. And then I have a blindfold. And I just want to, just want to show this again. Okay, we're going to blindfold you this time. So you can't actually see what's going on around you. It just makes it a bit more disorientating. And a little bit harder to trust. Because you can't see. Okay. Fear you're ready. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Great. So that's part of trusting. Trusting goes a little bit further than that. Because trusting is trusting in something that you can't understand and you don't actually know how that person is going to rescue you. Sophie, are you ready? No. <laughs> Do you trust me? Do you trust that you're going to be safe? There's a trust here, Fee. You're going to be safe. Are you ready? To fall. I won't hurt you, okay? I won't let any... Go for it. Great. Thanks, V. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. This is a great example of just what it is to trust God. Okay, it's actually trusting him, even though we don't quite know how it's all going to work out. Although we know the answer of how Christ has worked it out. This isn't, a, by the way, just that picture. This isn't a blind faith. Just want to say that that we're trusting God. God is real. We've had encounters with Him. We know Him, and He is totally trustworthy. Okay, but trusting does take committing your life. And for Fee there, she demonstrated it excellently, knowing that I was far off, trusting that God was going to rescue her. That is what trusting is. Okay? So, that just helps us to understand a little bit about when we're talking about this trusting in God, faith in Him, who He is. Um, so we're going to start with this passage. And um, we start again, it's funny, isn't it, how Paul uses this very strong language, doesn't he? And... Um, Again, he starts in here, who has bewitched you? There's no small punches here. It's it's straight bang, right in the face. Who's bewitched you? Essentially, what he's saying to them is, they've been tricked, and they're being tricked. They've become fools. And the reason he's saying they're being fooled, and they're being tricked, is because before they actually had their their eyes on Christ, who was publicly portrayed as crucified. And Paul knows this because he was with them. Okay, And I want to say this, no one historically in Galatia saw Jesus Christ crucified. That would be the idea. It's not that these people saw him in the literal, being crucified. So when Paul uses this language, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He's not saying that you saw him, 
but rather that you responded to this very message, this gospel message of Christ crucified. And salvation wasn't built on anything other than that. It was the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that was their foundation. That's how they heard it. That's how they understood it at the time. And that's how they came, very simply, to believers. And so Paul says, that's what you heard. That's how you saw it. That's what you accepted then. But now, now you're bewitched. You believe there's another way for you to be saved. And because of that, I'm calling you fools. And he moves on to this question. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now Paul is, again, he's a master craftsman when it comes to writing and these letters. And as you see it, and he's putting together this argument. And as he starts in this chapter, in chapter 3, he actually points to something so powerful. He points them back to their personal experience. Why? Well, he knows. He is aware that actually one of the most powerful weapons in the Christian's arsenal is their experience of God. Their personal experience of God. And we've just heard this morning, haven't we? We heard Guy's experience encounter with God. And... Um, do you know, it is so, so powerful. Guy essentially told the message of today in his gospel, in his testimony of what God has done to him. He's ba- I could have got him up just to preach chapter 3 on what he spoke. Um, but for me and my personal story, I grew up in a Christian household and um, I grew up knowing God. I remember giving my life to him at 6 And then I rebelled, and I essentially fell off the rails. And I was rebelling against my father and everything that he stood for. And the problem was, is that I actually, I really genuinely knew that Christ was real. Because I'd already encountered him. I'd encountered him at six. And I remember going to uh, different Bible weeks and seeing people healed who were blind from birth. I saw people getting out of wheelchairs. I saw people who were severely dyslexic getting up and reading Word Perfect. And I personally encountered the Holy Spirit on numerous occasions. And so as I rebelled, I remember being at these Stony Bible Weeks, and essentially you've got a whole load of church leaders' kids all rebelling. And... I remember going along with these guys and yet knowing clearly in my heart that God is real. And yet there was something in me that wanted to rebel against it. And yet God in his grace kept coming to me and kept giving me his spirit. And I was lavished with the spirit. And I remember, remember one meeting just very clearly. I, I met this guy and he wasn't a church leader's son. And he was built like a tank. He was only 13. and I, I was 13 at the time. And he was... He was he was throwing the javelin for the 18, under-18s, and so he was, he was absolutely massive. He's this big, rough guy, and I remember in the last meeting, on, on the last night, the guy just broke down. We decided we were going to go to the meeting, and he just broke down, and he just started weeping, and I just couldn't contain myself, and I was just weeping with him, and the Spirit of God came on us 
And again, I left there going, oh, Lord, I just, I know so clearly your encounters with me. It was, I was speaking to Lynn, she's not here this morning, but hearing her encounter on Wednesday nights, that actually she was in a workplace where there was Christians and they were expressing to her, you know, come to church and they were giving her books about Jesus and she was like, yeah, yeah, I've read it, I've read it. She was like, I haven't read it at all, but I just passed them back on because I can't bother to read them. And she went to a guy's baptism and she said she was, she was not interested at all. She came to the baptism purely because the guy who was getting baptized, she thought he's a nice guy at work and he's asked me to come along. And it was in that moment where the Holy Spirit came on her. And that was it. All the persuasion of man didn't touch the surface. And yet the Holy Spirit came and touched her and she was transformed. And she knew from that point on, I'm his and he's real. And I just want to say, personal experience, Paul is appealing here to the Galatians' personal experience. And we are going to continue to share testimonies every month here in Freedom Church because this is such a powerful tool and it gives glory to God that actually he works in our lives. And do you know, when I was a young guy, I was very arrogant, very cocky. I used to go around chatting up the girls and smoking and smoking drugs and all that sort of thing at these Bible weeks. And God came to me. And I think we have one question to ask. All of us. Did he come to reveal his delight in you or I because we did something, this is what Paul's saying, or did he just save us? Did he come because of something good that we had done, or did he just come and save us? And I know from my personal experience, I was not doing anything at all that could have pleased God. And yet he came to me in his grace, And Paul's reasoning here to the Galatian church is very simple. He's basically saying, if you were saved when you were at your very worst, what makes you think God's affections for you now have waned? So that you would leave the gospel and go and try and earn what was freely given to you in his delight in saving you. He came to me when I was at my very worst. And that is the same for all of us. When we were lost, when we were not just lost, but we were against him. We were his enemies. And he came to us. And he saved us. And Paul asked this question, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit... Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? The Greek words translated effort is sakari, which is the flesh. So essentially what he's saying is, after beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of effort? Do you feel like, and this is what he's saying to the Galatian church, You were clearly saved when you were at your very worst, and yet now you feel like you need to save yourself. 
as you continue in this journey. And you need to save yourself through your efforts, through the things that you're doing. Now I want to say, if we're honest, and we take an honest look at ourselves, then we have a tendency to be just like the Galatians, don't we? And we forget, and we become foolish. And... I don't know what your personality is like, but I know for me, I am fairly motivated. I'm quite a doer. And often at the end of the day, you want to feel like you've accomplished something and you've done something and you've got something to prove it. And if you don't, you get really frustrated. And if you have that sort of bent in your life, if that's who you are, you're more of a a Martha than a Mary, then it's so easy at times, I would say, to make that same foolish decisions at times, to attach itself to your relationship with Christ. It's much easier for me to be doing rather than just to be, okay? And if we're not careful, what ends up happening is we feel like God really loves us and is delighting in us when we're nailing it, when we feel like everything is going so well when I'm leading well, when I'm preaching well, when I'm engaging with people well and sharing the gospel. And I'm doing all these things that I'm supposed to be doing. And then, the same is true when those things aren't happening, when I'm not nailing it, when I'm not having those devotional times, when I'm feeling like I haven't reached out to anybody, when I feel like I am caught in home and I am not being social or not doing the things that the Bible tells us to do, and actually you feel like God is displeased at you. Does anybody else feel that? Yeah. Yeah? We just saw how last week the Apostle Paul rebuked Peter, didn't he? Over the fact that he started by reaching the Gentiles and then he started actually just meeting with the Jews because he felt like actually the Gentiles were inferior. There was something that they had to do. And so Paul rebukes him, doesn't he? And I want to say this, if the Apostle Peter, who spent three years with Jesus, who... Jesus said, you're the rock. If he was able to do this and fall into this mistake, then I think we have to watch our own lives. And we have to say, are we falling into the same mistakes? Are we falling into the mistake of feeling like we have to do these things to keep our salvation? Or we do these things because we think it's going to please God? This is exactly what Paul is talking about and challenging and saying, this is nothing about what you do. It's about your faith. In verse 14 of Galatians chapter 3, it mentions the promise of the Spirit. And as I said, I want to just look at a few different things here that are going on in this chapter. And so I want to look at the Holy Spirit. Because Paul mentions the Holy Spirit, I think it's five times in this little section. And I want to say the Holy Spirit is not a negotiable for Paul. 
It is a total non-negotiable. He would see that in salvation, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you and me. And actually, the way that we live for him and are able to live for him is through the Holy Spirit. Not through human effort, not through us trying more. The power comes from the Holy Spirit. So I just wanted to look at Ezekiel 36. You can't read that. This is a surgery table. Um, This was a promise of what God was going to do in his people. And bearing in mind what had happened throughout generation after generation was that God would send his Holy Spirit on specific people. And they would encounter the Spirit and they would lead God's people. And he would speak to them and they would lead them into different battles. They would lead them to things that God had promised to them, promised lands. They would lead them out of lands where they were not doing well. And essentially, we see time and time again, God's people messing up, okay, and making the mistakes and falling down. And we get this promise from God. It's Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Do you know this was God's initiative? This was nothing to do with man thinking, oh well, what are we going to do now because we keep messing up? This was totally and utterly God's initiative. And he decided that the only way to see his people transformed and changed was actually to completely renew them. To give them completely new hearts and spirits. And um, essentially the sprinkling clean and giving us a new heart. And it is no longer will you have hearts like stones. I'm going to put my very spirit in you. And he will cause you the Spirit will cause you to follow my ways like you've never done before. Do you know, I want to say that often in spite of the ways that we often talk, you and I are totally, and I want you to hear this, we're totally incapable of pleasing God without the Holy Spirit. Without Him living in us. It's not that it's just difficult to please Him, It's actually absolutely impossible to please him without the Spirit of God living in us. You see, telling me to walk in God's ways with my natural heart of stone is like telling an apple tree to produce oranges. The apple tree can strain, it can go into accountability groups, but it's never actually going to produce oranges unless it's actually given a completely new DNA. And we're like that. Our hearts of stone, try as we might, try all the methods out there, all the strategies out there, it's not, hearts of stone are not going to lead to obedience to God. God knew that we were going to need a transformation, a DNA transformation. The Spirit, the very Spirit of God living in us. And you know, I think lots of people are baffled by this. 
What do you mean? It sounds like there's nothing that we can do by our own effort. It's all a question of being given something by God. Do you know that is it? That is the gospel. It is all his initiative. It is him who gives. It is nothing that we bring to this equation. Absolutely nothing. John 3, 5 to 6 says, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Do you know, I want to say, the Spirit living in us, we still have a choice, okay? It's not that obedience is totally automatic. Right, I've become a Christian, that's it, everything's changed and transformed. We have a choice. God gives us a choice, even with the Spirit living in us. A choice to ignore our new DNA. But I want to say it's not difficult either to actually hear and follow the Spirit who's living in us. When I, I remember it was 19 when God totally transformed me and spoke to me in a manner like he spoke to Guy. And he said, you know that I'm yours and I want you to live for me. It wasn't that I had to strain, it wasn't that all the things I was doing, smoking and all these other drinking and all those things. It wasn't that he came and said, I want these things cleared up before you and I are going to be right. Do you know, if you're going to be part of my team, Chris, then we need to just get these things ticked off first and then you can come and be part of the team. He came to me with all the mess and because he sent his spirit to dwell in me, it wasn't a difficult thing to see change. Actually, it was a very supernatural thing. Holy Spirit living in me gave me new desires to live for him. The Spirit of God living in us transforms us from the inside out. Okay? I want to move on just to look at this verse 6. Paul sort of develops his argument from looking at the personal experience to realizing that actually... How do I bring in the fact that these Judaizers are Jews and they're trying to bring this argument against the gospel? Actually, he's very clever. Okay? And he uses Abraham. And so he brings Abraham into this argument. Because Abraham is the Jewish father, essentially. Um, He's the father of the Jewish faith. And he cleverly uses Abraham to back up his entire argument that salvation came to Abraham through faith. And just to give you a few highlights, if you don't know much about Abraham and his life, um, he is a man of faith, okay? He did lots of great things. Um, You know, God comes to him when he's in this household with all his family and says, get your wife, get your stuff, we're going to a new place. And Abraham said to God, so where are we going? And he says, I'll tell you when you get there. Now, I don't know what your response would be, but um, I want to know where I'm going. What do you mean you'll tell me when I get there? Where do I go? Where do I start? But Abraham's response was to go. Just to go. 
God came to him in his 90s and said, you're going to have a son? And he did. Years later, he came to him with his son and said, I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him on an altar. And I want you to go, but you're not going to know where you're going. But I'll tell you when you need to know. And he went. And he is a man of faith, actually doing things that he doesn't know what God's going to do. Yet he knows he's spoken. And so he does. And he is a remarkable man. And the amazing thing about Abraham is actually he was saved 430 years before the law is ever given. I don't know if you knew that. There wasn't a law in Abraham's day that could say There wasn't even a set of rules that might deliver him. There was nothing actually, even, even though he was a man impressive in faith, there was nothing in his faith that made him righteous before God. There was nothing in and of his faith that made him righteous. So you're hearing this. God is pleased by faith. But even this remarkable faith doesn't make him righteous. And yet, for some reason in God's divine economy, Abraham's trust in God, in Yahweh, was imputed. It was credited to him as righteousness. This is an accountancy term. If Ken was here, he'd tell us all about it. But essentially, if you've got those Excel columns, righteousness was put into his account. It was credited to him. And um, I want to tell you about Rick Hoyt. I don't know if you know this man. In 1992, he completed the Boston Marathon in two hours and 40 minutes. Now, that might not seem anything remarkable about that, if you know anything about marathons. But what is remarkable is that Rick was strangled by his umbilical cord at birth. And ever since, he has been unable to control his limbs. He cannot talk or feed himself, let alone walk. So the fact that he completed a marathon just 35 minutes shy of the world record is somewhat surprising. Because of Rick's love for sport, for sport, this is what happened. Do you want to put that next slide up? This is Rick and his dad. Some of you may have seen one of these videos on YouTube, but they are a well-known duo. And his father has pushed him, carried him, towed him for a thousand marathons and fun runs. Numerous triathlons. This is him. That's what he has to do for the triathlon. He has to swim with a boat behind him, with his son in the boat. It's remarkable. He's done cross-country skiing with him, rock climbing, and even a 3,700-mile cycle ride across the US of A. Now, Rick cannot move. He certainly cannot run or swim. All he brings to the table here is a love for sport and a reliance on his dad. Yet he is credited with completing 
over 200 triathlons simply by sitting there and trusting the one who was pushing him. His faith in his father means he ends up being rewarded without doing any work whatsoever. If we look at Abraham, I want to say this again, there was nothing in his faith that made him righteous before God. But somehow in this divine economy, he was credited as righteous. And I want to say when God credits righteousness, he is conferring, this is a legal status on someone. And he treats them actually as righteous and free from condemnation, even though they are still actually unrighteous in their heart and behavior. It's a legal term. They're justified. I want to say this concept is just totally mind-blowing. That's why Paul keeps going on about this. This absolutely blows your mind when you start to understand it. Because everything tells us, traditional religion tells us, that we are either living righteously and therefore pleasing to God, or we're living unrighteously and therefore alienated from God. And what we're actually seeing in this gospel, this good news, is that it's possible to be loved and accepted by God while we ourselves are sinful and imperfect. Martin Luther coins a famous phrase about Christians. He says we are simultaneously righteous and sinful. We're simultaneously righteous and sinful. I want to say again, we bring nothing to our salvation. We simply are about trusting our Father that He is strong enough and loving enough to take us with Him to victory. We're trusting Him that He takes us into His victory. The victory that He has won for us. And we're credited with His righteousness. It's remarkable. I want to move just as we end onto this final section of the curse. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. You know, put very simply, in layman's terms, if you want to try and measure yourself up and live by the law, then you'll be cursed essentially to one outcome. Failure. If you want to try and measure yourself up and say, no, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this, your outcome is failure, which means death and rejection by God. Now, if we look at the Ten Commandments, honestly, we start to reckon that, we start to recognize in ourselves, if we're honest, that we have fallen short of numerous of them, if not all of them. Probably not all of them, but most of them. The problem actually comes when we realize that the Jews, there's actually 613 commandments in the Bible. Not just these 10. There were 613. And if we attempt to say that we think we should live by the law and be measured against it, then we're in big, big trouble. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law 
by becoming a curse for us. For us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Tim Keller says this, he says, He received the curse we earned, so that we might receive the blessing that he earned. So our sins and the curse of rejection by God, the curse of death, was imputed to him, to Christ. His righteousness, because he was perfect, he was the only one who lived a perfect life. His righteousness and blessing and spirit, his very spirit, are imputed to us. Now Jesus, when he came to the cross, he became sin for us. Actually, the Father, even though Christ was perfect and sinless, the Father was able to recognize him as a sinner and was able to actually have the whole anger and wrath poured out on him. Because God was able to recognize him in that sense, that he became this sin for us. It's now that we actually get to stand and be recognized by the Father as righteous. He looks at you and me. And what does he see? He sees that we're righteous and flawless. Because all of Christ's righteousness and beauty has been imputed to us. Do you know, God came to us when we were a mess. And he continues to come and transform our messiness through the power of the Spirit. Not through human effort. And we're going to hear this as we continue to go on. And if it's uncomfortable, I'm not going to apologize. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we come to. I want us to pray right now. In fact, can I ask the worship team back up? I want us to pray for the Spirit, okay? If we are to live for Him, then we need to be asking the Spirit to come and help us. To come and help us to be transformed and to live for Him, okay? We are not going to manage this from any trying, from any accountability groups. This is a work of the Spirit, okay? So do you want to stand? Before the band play, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray.